0: My granddad's name was a curse for me until 1991. And it became a blessing right after the communism fell. That's life, basically.
1: Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today comes from a country that for many people may still be a little bit mysterious, even though things have changed a lot in the last few years. It's a country that I personally love very much, and I have been a few times, but we're of course not only going to talk about the country, we're going to talk about the man himself, and I am delighted to have him on my podcast today, Bilal Kola. I was was actually practicing, and now I really said it wrong. Bilal Kola. Am I saying that correct? Correct. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. pleasure to be with you here. First time around, you were correct, so no need to correct
1: what you are actually correct about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to make sure, you know. So, Bilal, you are a you have a PhD. You are actually Doctor Kola. You are a lawyer, and um, have become in the last uh, in the past few years. You have uh, become a motivational speaker. You are an author. You basically have learned from your story. You have a story, and this is the story that I want to talk to you about. But, you know, you used your story for fuel to become who you are today. Am I right?
0: Well, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, I do have a story. And uh, yes, I believe that in terms of what I'm doing now with my life, and of course, in terms of what I aspire to do early in my youth. Yes, I've used my story as fuel for uh, all the ambitions I had about educating myself and uh, the ambitions I had about, let's say, being a force for uh, good and uh, somebody who could, you know, do his best to contribute and become a positive influence for the life of others. Also, taking into account what I have been through uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, certain consequences that life brought on me.
1: Yeah, because Albania was until 1991, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 1991. It was very, very closed up. You weren't really in touch with any other people in the world and um, you were under a lot of control.
0: That is right. That is right. Actually, until 1991, Albania did not belong either to, of course, not to the uh, Western, uh, let's say, societies, but neither did it belong to the Eastern communist bloc because as of 1961, Albania was completely on its own, a completely segregated country. So, yes, Albanians uh, about three million uh Albanians were living in a big prison, but there was not an insignificant number of Albanians. We are talking about at least fifteen to sixteen percent of the population who were not living just in this big prison, but they were living either in small prisons or rather bigger prisons, and the small prisons just uh hear me out on this a little bit. They were like the small prisons were talking about really confined prisons and the rather bigger prisons were talking about concentration camps where people who were living there they could leave concentration camps provided they got some special permission from the authorities. So that's basically what was going on with Albania starting in 1945 up until uh, September 1991.
1: You remember the month because it was very important to you. um, Because I read that you were actually in one of those concentration camps and you couldn't finish school.
0: Well, I was born in a concentration camp and I was released from the concentration camp when the communist regime completely collapsed. And that was September 1991, when I was 18 years of age. So, I stress this, I didn't know anything big prison, because only in few occasions I left the concentration camp. Only when visiting my dad in the political prison, notorious political prison of uh, Burel, and uh, in a few other occasions when my uh, mom was going to see her parents. So only those occasions. And as you put it out yourself, yes, I was also deprived of going to the secondary school. So when I was 14, I started, I was ordered to work heavy agricultural labor work. So while doing this labor work, I was uh, growing in terms of, I was uh, very small uh, stature, being uh, badly, I mean, badly fed during all my life. And, uh, you know, it was, I can vividly recall that it was um, absolutely very unpleasant uh, experience, all of it.
1: Amazing. Do you remember how you felt in September nineteen ninety-one? What did you what 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 went through your head when you actually or when did you actually realize that this is over?
0: I realized it was over in December nineteen ninety, even though those eight lingering uh, months, to be honest with you, in those eight lingering months, I have been as happy as I could be. Even though I was not free because I was sensing, I was smelling, I was, you know, everything was and I was only 17 at that time. I was smelling freedom and I was smelling all those um, opportunities that i had envisaged for myself when I was a teenager, uh, a young boy, um, not being able to go to school and i had all these wild dreams of uh fleeing the communist albania and going to the states becoming a lawyer there you know uh, all these wild dreams they were not a, like an imaginary thing anymore for me starting december 1990 when some uprising started uh in albania students starting some massive uprising in tirana i was smelling the 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 the, the interesting uh, flavor of, of uh, freedom. So yes, I've been living those uh, eight months until uh, September when I really uh, got out of the concentration camp and came to Tirana with full hope and absolutely uh, like I was, I was delighted basically in and out.
1: I can imagine. I can imagine because eight months can be a very long time when you are waiting for something so important. And uh, I also read somewhere that you got hold of books, though. You managed to read Western books and you you knew about America and you knew what you wanted, but it wasn't sort of tangible yet at the time, but you were ready.
0: Yeah, uh, I would say that the books were like, I was not just escaping, uh, the reality with those books I read when I was about maybe 12, 13, right at the, uh, starting of my teen years, I got in so much into books because I knew that what I was experiencing uh, as experiencing as a reality, of course, did not match my uh, aspirations for what I wanted to live, uh, in life. So in order for me to get completely uh in a world of my own, I started reading. And actually, I'm these kind of readings, the books that I read made me um live a sort of um sort of I was living my own life, even though that was only in my mind and imagination. But still the deprivations that I faced in the reality, at least they were not as burdensome because the books gave me hope. Not like intangible hope but hope that yes someday I will make it and they have carved in my uh, soul and mind I would say deep ambitions and desires so yes I was absolutely raring to go when uh, communism collapsed and yes I did take my uh, opportunities with both hands when they availed themselves to me.
1: Yeah, but you see, this is a very important thing that you just said. You did take the opportunities because you didn't have any opportunities before. And there are many people in this world who do have opportunities, but they don't see them. And um, I think this is one of the things that you are teaching people today. That And that's what I'm teaching people as well, because I'm also doing a similar thing to you. Opportunities appear, but we have to notice them.
0: Ah, that is so true. That is so true. Opportunities, um, even for me, I consider finding those books, reading those books, I consider that as an opportunity to present itself. I was raring to go. I was absolutely ready to grasp everything that life uh, was exposing me to. So in our uh, world today, I believe our world today is filled with opportunities. You know, I have done with my life since 1991, everything, and by everything, please understand, everything with capital letters.
1: Everything Which is legal. I did... which is legal.
0: <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I did not have wild, uh, like I had wild dreams, but I didn't have wild dreams of doing things which would be illegal. Yes, I've done all the legal things yes. that I aspire to do, and by all the legal things is this. I have had top education, I have had, uh, I've traveled the world. I've, I love traveling. I've been in so many countries, uh, and I like to explore the countries, not from above, but basically, uh, you know, I've traveled the, I haven't been to Scandinavian countries yet, but I've traveled the, almost the entire European continent by car and I haven't been to Portugal by car. So, and I've traveled by car so that you understand. Where I say everything in terms of travel, I've traveled uh, both uh, Western and Eastern course of uh, coast lines of uh, U.S. and Canada. I've been to so many countries. Of majority of my visits have been for business reasons, but sometimes also I mix business with pleasure. So and tourism as well. I was just going to say where I where I visit the country that you live. I I wanted to visit Cyprus for a long time. Uh, like five years I had made my plans to come and visit Cyprus but of course you catch up on on things you have to do uh, the business that you do you have I mean all these things and the opportunity availed itself that the international lawyers conference that I uh I'm a I was a part and I'm still a part uh with headquarters in London they organized the conference in Cyprus and I said here I am I'll go to Cyprus attend this conference and have a little bit of holidays and explore explore the place so that's what I did when I said I've done everything, uh, yes, in terms of, uh, my career, I've, uh, done everything I have wanted to. Uh, I finished my education. I did my LLB, degree, my bachelor's, uh, bachelor degree in, uh, law in, uh, London. I also did my master's in international business law in London. And, uh, when you mentioned my PhD, which is in strategic leadership, I did that in an American university in Vienna while I was teaching, it was like a barter transaction. While I was teaching students, uh, undergraduate students in that university business law, which I've done in Albania for like 15 or more years in a university in Albania. So uh, I would say that starting 1991 until 2023, I've done everything I kind of uh, dreamt about when I was in that concentration camp.
1: Wow. Um, I also read somewhere that you, and, and we were talking before about opportunities, you met somebody who, who helped you go to study in the UK, right?
0: That is correct. That is correct. It, it is. Uh, let me just share this with, with you, Elizabeth, and your audience. It happened uh, that out of uh, three nephews that my granddad had, well, it was me who actually inherited his name. My dad named me after his own dad. And only because of that, because my brother, he was allowed to go to the secondary school. My, uh, cousin, he was also, and they are, uh, elder than me. They are older. So yes, they were allowed to go to the secondary school because internees, they were not allowed to go to university or college, but, uh, secondary school. It was okay. Uh, we could go, uh, It was like a special exclusion from this rule, from the exclusionary rule of higher education, my case. And the communists uh, did this whenever they had, uh, because my granddad used to be a prominent political figure during, uh, let's say, late 1930s and during the Second World War, he was helping uh, British SOEs who arrived in Albania to, to organize local population in fight against Nazis. And I stress this, my granddad was somebody who had an affinity for German, let's say German speaking countries, because he was someone who was educated in Austria himself. But he made a clear cut distinction in terms of ideology and in terms of where the world was about to go. So he collaborated with a British not with the Nazis, because he knew that the values, the humanity values, they were basically promoted and protected by the uh, Allies, not the Nazis. Even though this inclination of him having, let's say, uh, you know, studying for six years, I believe, he studied in in, uh, Vienna. Anyway, uh, my granddad was helping the British SOEs, and one of these guys, Julian Emery, who was a lord at that time, He arrived in 1993 in Albania, attending a ceremony where he was being awarded the highest honor, the George Skanderbeg order that we have here. George Skanderbeg is our national hero by then President Berisha, Albanian president. So my dad met him and he basically asked him only this favor. When he found, when Emery found out that I was inheriting his friend's name, he said, it's not a favor I'm going to do. This is like an outmost obligation. So basically, he took care of everything. His assistant, personal assistant, helped me with everything in terms of uh, scholars, in terms of in terms of the scholarship that I got, in terms of the applications that I presented. There was this system of UCAS. You had to apply to a uh, like uh, to attend British university. You had to apply to a specific system, which I had no clue about. And uh, this wonderful lady helped me, of course, guided by by Lord Emery. And there I kicked on. So, yes, my granddad's name was a curse for me until 1991. And it became a blessing right after the communism fell. That's life, basically.
1: That's absolutely amazing. But that's goes back again. It goes back again to recognizing opportunities because you could have just or your dad could have just participated at this event and not spoken to Lord Emery about you wanting to go to England. So you'd grasp the opportunity and you went to to the UK. Was that the first time you went abroad? (laughs)
0: Yes, and there is this funny story at the airport. It was the first time I went abroad. And the funny story that happened in the... Actually, what I did, because I was following my middle school at that time, when he came here, but what happened was that he invited me to go to UK and do summer school there. So the first time I went to UK was not when I started... My studies because it was the next, the, the year after. But anyway, the first time I went to UK, we had these passports and they had all the emblems of the communists. Even though the communist regime had, had fallen and collapsed, still the authorities issued those old passports. And I arrived in Heathrow. It was not only one immigration officer, but at least like five of them because they had, they had never seen such passports. And the guys were like, what is this passport about? (laughs) Because it was like, uh, it was a communist passport, basically. So uh, yes, it was my first time in UK. And I was, I don't know how to put this, but I was like, where am I here? What am I doing in this place? I was like, this is like heaven on earth.
1: Yeah, that's like, and, and it must have been a little bit overwhelming as well at the beginning because, you know, suddenly it, because it was a huge, huge change. And, um, I, I admire you. I admire people. I'm from Switzerland and, you know, we have always had everything available. We never had to fight for anything. And, for people like you who take these opportunities, who use them, who who must have felt very, very uncomfortable at the beginning sometimes and really, really did something with this opportunity. That is amazing. That's admirable. And I think you've done really, really well.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. I really appreciate this. Uh, to be honest with you, overwhelming it was absolutely so, but I was cherishing it. Uh yes. My English at that time was okay because I studied like like I don't know like crazy. I studied 8 hours a day when I had the opportunity. I've learned Italian through watching Incognito Italian TV during communism because we were not allowed to uh watch like foreign uh channels. But we did some antennas, you know, my uh let's say brother and and cousin, we did some antennas, and actually I didn't have a television set at home. I went to other people uh, who had a television set. So, first time I've had a television set, I think it was in 1991, late 1991 when we arrived in Tirana. But, yes, uh, I learned Italian through television. I had no clue about English. I didn't know. Yes, I was actually listening to Italian hit parade, and there were English songs there. And because of this association of my granddad with, with let's say, English as, as a family, we were kind of um, sort of oriented towards like Anglo-Saxon things. But in a way, I, it was just an orientation because we could not, I, I did not have any opportunity to learn English. And I was in school, in primary school, I was forced to learn Russian. And I I am sorry to say this, but I hated it. Nothing against Russian people. Just, I hated the language only for one major reason because I associated Russia with communism. So I just hated it. I didn't want to learn it. I was like resisting with all I could. But, uh, and if basically when we, uh, you know, got free and the communism collapsed, I only knew maybe five or six words in English out of what I imagined those songs were the the lyrics of those songs were about. So when in 1991, when I started learning English, I I went like crazy. I went into this course where people were teaching Bible. Americans were teaching Bible. I did whatever thing. I I started reading Dr. Zhivago. Somebody gave me this book, Dr. Zhivago. I knew maybe about 200 words in English. And I was reading Dr. Zhivago with a vocab, with a a dictionary. It, It just so I've sort of, Try to practice colloquial English, Try to expand my vocabulary, everything. And I was, I, I believe I read Dr. Zhivago maybe for about two weeks because I had nothing else to read. So I found this old dictionary and uh, Albanian English. I found this book. Somebody gave me this book. I said, so God bless you for giving me this wonderful opportunity <laughs> so I can, improve, I can improve my English. And uh, I was studying English like math because i wanted to to sort of not waste one second of my life anymore i wanted to catch up lost time and so when i went to uk in um, 1993 that was doing this doing this uh, summer school i managed to get into the advanced level for one for that one month because you know without ever practicing english before 1991 for only 2 years I had managed to go to a level of at least having some some uh, English uh, skills, and uh, that was it. That was it.
1: All thanks to Doctor Shibago. You see, oh, what <laughs> <I> can... <laughs> many <laughs> many years. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean because you were hungry, and this is very often the problem in today's world. I think sometimes people are not hungry enough you know, for for uh, for stuff that they could have. I don't mean hungry as in hungry from the stomach, but in hungry, we are overwhelmed with opportunities and we are overwhelmed with things and we don't really know where to start anymore. You knew what you wanted.
0: Uh, I believe the deprivations that I was facing as a, let's say, as a kid and then as a young boy made me like kind of sculpt this massive will and massive desire that I had to to succeed in life and make the best of all the opportunities that life presented to me. So I believe that if we link this to today's opportunities, which are limitless, mm, we have no one else to blame but ourselves when we don't have a vision for our life. There There is nothing lacking. There is nothing. We've got every tool possible out there. So all we need to do is become... A little bit, uh, an orchestrator. We don't have to invent music. We just have to play along the kind of music that, uh, goes in tune with what we, uh, have as a talent, passion in life. But not much of a, not much of will and desire is needed nowadays because nowadays we, all we have to do is spot what we, sort of uh like to develop as a skill, as a talent or passion and just go about doing what we're supposed to do. Live as our very best possible version.
1: Fantastic. And that's so true. You um started your own legal company from what I read, but um you your I think from what I understand your passion is motivating people. You you want to more or less use your story, basically. I think your message is, if I can do it, you can do it too.
0: I, you know, I'm so, uh, you, you just basically found the click now. Yes, that is so true. My, I believe each one of us has a purpose. And I love this quote from Rumi. I love Rumi actually as a thinker. And he's got this fantastic quote. He says, in order for us to be the very best version of ourselves, we f- we have to sell our cleverness, and by cleverness he means what we come to know, be that as a life experience or as our own cultivation in terms of the knowledge and expertise we tend to accumulate in life, and by what bewilderment, by our own happiness. So the the very true purpose of each one of us is to live in tune with his own music. And I believe um, I, I've done all these things I told you about in terms of, yeah, I've worked for interesting uh, companies. I've worked in public sector, private sector. Then in 2009, I just felt, yes, I need to do this because I've got this free spirit, this entrepreneurial spirit. And I felt that I wasn't going to do myself any justice if I didn't do this. And 2009, I started my own law firm and has gone absolutely fantastic for me. I've been working with prestigious uh, companies from across the globe, met fantastic people, wonderful uh, individuals, talented, dedicated from across the globe. So I'm very, very sort of happy with what I've done. But to be honest with you, Elizabeth, I kind of felt that I was not listening to my real uh, music i was kind of yes the music i was listening was good was nice i was basically doing this uh yes um, as a university professor has always been interesting and challenging because of the attitude i have in life i consider myself a student i consider myself and i would like to consider myself as a lifelong student so being in touch with students getting amongst them felt uh, real nice because i have not been doing that for like for the past couple of years due to my heavy commitments now on this uh, new venture. But I felt that, no, this is not what I truly want to do with my life. I think there is so much more in me in terms of the positive impact I could could have on the life of others. As you said yourself, if I could do it, and obviously it was not an uphill battle for me, but it was like I was 1,000 meters deep in the ocean rather than on Earth. I was not standing on, on soil when I started this journey, reading those books incognito. Uh, and uh, I believe I've come to a point in my life that I fulfilled all my sort of, you know, I've grown myself. Of course, I, I I feel and I need to grow each single day of my life. But I feel now that I've come to a point where I could share with others what I come to know and what I've come to Cultivate as mindsets, as experiences, and as expertise in terms of the soft skills that I have developed. So that's, that's about me now. I intend to do this as long as this is not going to be, I don't have a plan for retirement, by the way. If I'm, uh, if I live 90 or 100, I'm going to do that until the very last day I breathe. So this is what yeah. I plan to do with my life.
1: I totally agree with you. And retirement is for people who don't like what they do. If you like what you do, (laughs) there is no need to retire. And I want to do, because um, you were introduced to me by another very, very, because what you're saying, everything you're saying is very inspiring. And you were introduced to me by another very inspiring person, by Mirella Sulla, who is also from Albania and who is the founder of the Global Woman Club. I was the director of the Global Woman Club Cyprus for four years until recently. And um I want to thank her for introducing you to me because um otherwise we wouldn't be speaking here together. So shout out, Mirella. I hope you're listening you will be listening to this episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and allow me to also thank Mirella because I will thank Mirella for two main I I could thank Mirella for one hundred reasons, but two main uh reasons. I think she's one of the outstanding individuals, not because she's Albanian, but because she came from a background where the odds were stacked against her. And she's the sort of individual who went to the capital uh, of Europe. Uh, I'm not going to mention Brussels as capital of Europe this time, but to the proper capital of Europe in terms of who's who, and in terms of what's going on in the continent, in London, and she not only made it for herself, but she is being, for these past 10 years or so, a positive influence for the lives of so many people by setting her example. She's the force of the example. And this is the first thing. Second thing, I believe that in terms of what she's doing and the community of the people that she's doing, I have so much respect for all women who succeed because women in general, you know, if we have to be fair about things, you know, they don't have the same tools as men do. So I deeply congratulate Miela for these two things, for what she's done. In her own life and becoming an absolute ah, change for good for the life of people by setting her own example her own success example against all odds i need to stress this and for positively influencing the lives of so many women across the globe so yeah the two of us are on the same page here.
1: Yes, I can absolutely agree with that. And uh, she's still, she, I mean, she's. I sometimes I feel she's only she has done so much, but she's only just started, and there is a lot more that she wants to do, and it's fantastic. Now let's go back to something that I also read before you became a uh, motivational speaker. You were you worked at Tirana Airport. You worked for the. You were a legal advisor for the company that that. Um, uh built Tirana airport or what what
0: yes what? I was legal director of hoctif uh for Tirana because the major shareholder at Tirana airport was hotif a german uh company one of the biggest german uh, German companies yes, I worked with them starting from the scratch, so everything that has been built in that airport has also my modest contribution because I was overseeing all the legal work and the way HOKTIF works in Germany. And of course, the way they uh, set out about working in Albania is by outsourcing. So they are very, very good in outsourcing in terms of they supervise uh their contractors. Contractors work very good and they deliver absolute stunning results on that. So... The airport was about to develop in about, in, in, as per the concession agreement that we had with government of Albania, was about developing about six and a half years when Hoctiv took over uh, in 2005. What happened was that everything was finished by 2007. So yes, I've had my modest role there because uh, at that time it was like sort of the news the main news in the country, uh, the airport being privatized, not privatized as such, but uh, run and managed by a German company and, of course, developed by a German company. So Albanian public was eager to see what was coming in so that you uh, fully grasp this. The Albanian airport at this point in time is our main uh, gate to all this. Tourism influx that we're having in the country. So yes, I have, I do have my uh, kind of a very small role and contribution in all of this.
1: Yes, and I have been to that airport. Five times I was. I told you before we started recording. I've been to Albania five times. I have enjoyed every single visit, and I went there the first time in 2012, and the last time a couple of months in in May this year. And it has been it has developed developed in a very very beautiful um, tourism destination. Very good quality tourism at very good prices. I mean, the people are friendly. It It is a little paradise and maybe we shouldn't tell too many people about it, but then <laughs> on the <other> hand, <laughs> of course, people want to run their businesses. And it really is a little secret, if you ask me, for those people who want to have unspoiled places. Albania is a little dream.
0: Yes, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Albania is picking up and Albania is no more the hidden gem of Europe. Albania is... um mm, Albania, you know, we're just uh, south of us. We're born in Greece, one of the stunning, uh, let's say, countries in the Mediterranean, and not only Mediterranean, but across the globe. And right above us is Montenegro, again. So, you know, it goes without saying that we are in a Place where the sun meets the cuisine and hospitality, culture. We've got so many. Be- you've, you've visited uh, Girocastra. I'm not sure whether you visited uh, some really interesting uh, towns. We have, for example, Cruia, which is yes, in I've uh, been
1: there as well. Yes, I have. Yeah.
0: And Berat is stunning, beautiful. So we have some really interesting uh, towns and cities here, but the coastal line we have in the southern Riviera and what we have as beauty in the Albion Alps are, you know, they are, I'm not going to say unparalleled, but they stand on their own.
1: They can very easily stand on their own. I couldn't agree more. And uh, it really, really is beautiful. Now, before we get to the end, we want to talk about your book. You wrote a book. And I also want to talk about um, your public speaking, your motivational speaking. And um, you could be booked, couldn't you? If somebody is interested in having a fantastic keynote speaker with a lot of inspiration, they could get in touch with you.
0: I would be most pleased to basically get in touch with anyone who'd like to hear, uh, like really authentic, uh, stories, uh, in terms of, uh, resilience and in terms of, in terms of, uh, breakthroughs and in terms of, uh, making the very, very best out of, uh, unpleasant circumstances. But the main reason why I wrote this book, uh, Elizabeth, I'd like to share this with you and your audience, is that, um, in a way, book is a blueprint for what I would like to do with my professional, I stress this, professional life uh, from now onwards. As soon as I come to a point, because I have not basically completely closed my law office, even though I'm planning to sell it by end of uh, this year, uh, but as soon as I come to a point where, uh, let's say, I'm, I'm not fed up with law, but I, I think I've given all I could and I'm not interested in developing myself as a lawyer anymore. My interest, is, my interest now primarily lies into developing myself as a motivational speaker and, and coach. So yes, this book is about, I would say four, uh, cornerstones in our, in any individual's lives. And by four cornerstones, I mean, Our emotional, I say for those people who don't believe in God and spiritual for those people who believe in God revival. So I have, well, I have three chapters about the so-called spiritual revival. And I talk about, uh, I talk about accepting and changing reality. I talk about forgiveness, but I don't talk about forgiveness from the perspective of the sublime forgiveness that Jesus Christ exercised. I talk about forgiveness from a very grounded uh, perspective, like the kind of forgiveness that this priest taught, uh, taught my dad in prison, this famous clergyman, one of the most famous clergymen has ever had, uh, Dom Nicole Mazreku. He basically told my dad, uh, who do you think you are harming with all this hate, all this bitterness, all this rage you have about communism and communists. Do you think you're harming them? No, no, no. The only person you're harming is yourself. And as soon as you realize this, you're going to free a prisoner from prison. And actually, you're going to find out later on that the prisoner you freed is yourself. So basically, forgiving is like setting a prisoner free. And you find out that the prisoner you set free is yourself. You don't have to punish yourself for the wrongs and mistakes or, or whatever, uh, bad things others do. So leave that to them. Don't punish yourself by the hate, anger you cultivate in your mind and soul because, uh, people are doing wrong to you. So I talk about, uh, equanimity. I talk about, which is like the, the, the foundation of inner peace. I talk about the fact that um uh, if we are not attached we i love things you know i love people i love things i love ideas but hey i'm not attached or at least regarding people because this is most the most difficult thing i tend to not attach myself to anything in terms of being clingy in terms of you know this whatever we have on in our life is transitory we are transitory Every, our clothes, our car, our everything is transitory. So we better cultivate the mindset of appreciating and being thankful about the things we have rather than being clingy to them. Our kids, I love my two kids as much as a father could love them. But am I not aware of the fact that by the time they are 18, they are going to go and have their own lives? I should be aware of that because if I'm not, then I'll be suffering. So I talk about non non-attachment from let's say an emotional and spiritual perspective but also from a physical perspective. I talk about uh then other aspects uh in terms of uh let's say realizing our full potential. It is only us that have the obligation to make the best of the circumstances because circumstances will always be there whether we like them or not. But Kennedy, President Kennedy, has said this fantastic quote. He says, the Chinese language, which is basically one of the oldest languages that is currently spoken, has two hieroglyphs, two characters for the word danger. Word danger is described or is written by two different distinct characters. One means opportunity and once means uh, like... Uh, something which resembles to being extinguished like death so you can we can choose we can live our life in fear or grab the opportunity whatever opportunity life presents to us because life is always presenting opportunities and if there's something bitter that we experience try to learn from that bitterness in terms of uh serving as a lesson in terms of improving yourself be that from the uh physical perspective intellectual perspective material perspective or 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 whatever perspective or relationship perspective and i talk about uh emotional intelligence i talk about social intelligence in terms of achieving success everybody should know that it's not our iq which uh basically lays the path for our success but is our emotional state uh so many let's say studies have certified it is that if we divide percentages in terms of the success, outer success I'm talking, achieving our personal and and professional objectives, be that business-wise, be that career-wise, be that financial, let's say, ambitions that we have, it is not our IQ, but it is our, uh, let's say, emotional intelligence and social intelligence that determines our success. So I talk about Ikigai. I talk about Ikigai is Japanese purpose. Uh, I talk about every failure is a stepping stone to success because fear of failure, fear of failure, uh, like immobilizes so many people. We have all of us have passions. All of us have desires, but some of us are stuck because we might be considered as failures. If we try something and we don't achieve the desired, let's say, uh, goal. So I talk about so many things uh in my book, and all of them have three pillars. Empirical knowledge. So you find in my book Marcus Aurelius, Confucius, Confucius Epictetus, Epitectus, uh Seneca. You find all the sages of of uh let's say um antiquity. I I also the second pillar is the so-called studies and all the uh, imminent, uh, scientists are there in terms of what science proves about the topics that I, I mentioned. And also my personal perspective in terms of how I come to have these, let's say, mindsets. And of course, I talk about all the soft skills such as, uh, leadership skills, communication skills, uh, let's say, uh, persuasion skills, negotiation skills, all this, uh, desirable soft skills in order for each one of us to live uh, at the very peak in terms of our own personal and professional achievements in life.
1: And uh, Bilal, what's the book called?
0: The book, by the way, in uh, English, because the book will will be coming out In I'll I'll be attending the the launch event on uh, November 4th in London. The book in English will be 12 mindsets to improve life radically Excellent. but that will come out on on November
1: 4th we this podcast episode will probably not be posted before so we can you can send me the link when it's available
0: thank you thank you so much assa that really appreciate that
1: I think that was uh, a fascinating and it sounds like a fascinating book and it contains more or less everything that uh, people should know to live a meaningful life. And I think this is a good end to this podcast episode. Any last words, Bilal?
0: I truly enjoyed the conversation with you and I really like to keep in contact because I would like to learn uh, as much as I can from uh, someone like you who's been doing this for years and years. And, uh, just, uh, the only thing I'd say is that I, this is our first, uh, let's say podcast, but I would truly like to someday invite you to my podcast because I intend to have my podcast as well. So I would like for the two of us to remain in, in touch. And, uh, I would like to also learn as much as I can from you, but sometimes I might also give you one or two insights as well.
1: It will be my absolute pleasure. And I think what you said during the conversation, life is a lifelong learning process. We never, ever know everything. And if we are willing to listen to people, we can always learn something. And uh, with this, I would like to end this episode. And I want to thank you very, very much for being on Most Memorable Journeys today, Bilal Kola.
0: Thank you, Elisabeth. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
1: If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.